You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. and welcome to the Deep Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is, of course, no exception. We arrive on Christmas time, and this is going to be our last Christmas show for the month, actually, but this was one I meant to have during the month of the Reformation. It applies to both of them. And that's talking about Mary. Now, Mary is someone that I'm sure a lot of my Protestant evangelical people in the audience are already getting set to go into defensive mode for this mm-hmm. one and such, which really is a shame. Because even if sometimes we can think Catholics and Orthodox go too far with Mary, it's a mistake on our end if we go too little. Mary is a very important figure in redemptive Christian history, and we need to talk about her. In order to do that, I brought on the author of the book, Mary for Evangelicals. His name is Tim Perry. He wrote the book while teaching theology at Providence College in Otterburn, Manitoba, Canada. After leaving Providence, he served in parish ministry in Sudbury, Ontario, and continues to do so in Shawville, Quebec. He is an adjunct professor at St. Paul University in Ottawa, Ontario, and Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Dr. Perry, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thanks very much, Dick. It's good to be here. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, tell us how you got to be doing what you're doing. Uh, well, I uh, I went to uh, to my denominational Bible college back in 1988, ostensibly for a year, to uh, please my mom, uh, mm-hmm. basically. And uh, while I was there, God called me to ministry. And uh, it wasn't... Uh, a vision or a Damascus Road kind of experience, but I don't know how else uh, to describe it other than to say God called me. So I was there for three years. I did my BA, and then I went to seminary in Toronto. And uh, upon completing my MDiv, uh, it was clear to me that I was not ready to be in a church full-time on my own or uh, even to be an associate minister. So uh, under the encouraging of a couple of my professors there, I applied for a PhD study and uh, completed that in 1996 uh, from Durham University and then taught theology for a decade. When that ended, uh, I was ordained in the Anglican Church of Canada and served in Sudbury for a few years. And uh, now I'm uh, in Shawville, Quebec, where I pastor actually the church I grew up in. So I kind of, uh, it's been a circuitous route, but I've come full circle. Now, do you think the description I did give as far as accurate that, unfortunately for many evangelicals, as soon as they hear the name Mary, they can start thinking defensively? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, because since the third generation of the Reformation, she's 
she's kind of been the light lightning rod for all the solas, mm-hmm. you know, um, where uh, a classical Protestant will talk about sola fide, Mary is held up as cooperating with grace, uh, where a classical Protestant will talk about sola scriptura, uh, Mary will be held up as uh, uh, sacred uh, uh, scripture and tradition, scripture and sacred tradition, certainly around um, the uh, the modern dogmas of immaculate conception and bodily assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where uh, where we a classical Protestant would say solus Christus uh, in Christ alone. Uh, you know, Mary is held up as uh, uh, a co uh, co redemptrix uh, mm-hmm. is the kind of the hot button title. So, you know, we've we've had at least four hundred and fifty years of getting getting used to being defensive. So it's kind of become the default reaction, rightly or wrongly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, so I don't, uh, when, and, and I've, I've met with a fair bit of defensiveness and I, and I don't, uh, I don't find anything wrong with it. Uh, you know, at first blush, it's kind of, it's kind of a natural reaction. You just have to kind of come to expect it. Mm-hmm. Now, I think I also need to ask you then the question that is often asked in your book. So how's Mary doing today? <laughs> I think she's just fine. Mm-hmm. You're not so sure if you are that, right? <laughs> well, I wrote that book ten years ago, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> that that part of the book uh, was written right at the end of a, a, a really intense sabbatical uh, sabbatical project, and I was quite tired at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I often, uh, when I was teaching in the uh, full time, I used to joke with my colleagues that. You know, people who who think that sabbaticals for academics is is a year off for them to rest uh, really don't know what a sabbatical is. I I certainly never worked harder in my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a that's it was a a pretty big book. It was well over 600 pages in the original typescript. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I put it together in about 10 months. So it Mm -hmm. it was a lot of long days. And having gone through the book, it seems like you cover pretty much every period in church history. So I'm going, how how did you manage to do all this research, you know? (laughs) Well, I had access to a a really fine library. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a sabbatical scholar at St. Paul University in Ottawa, which is a uh, pontifically chartered uh, Catholic university in Canada. It's uh, run by the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And it is uh, far and away the best theological library under one roof in the country. Um, Toronto School of Theology, I think, has a better library. The problem is it's uh, split amongst the member colleges. Um, St. Paul has everything handy under one roof. And being a Catholic university, it had a really well-developed Mary section. So uh, I, you know, I was I was right at home there. It it really was great, and uh, their uh, their late professor of theology, Kevin Coyle, uh, he taught historical theology there for years. Uh, died uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, he was tremendously uh, helpful. Um, he had a, a an abiding interest in uh, in Mary and in ecumenical dialogue. And uh, he was just a really, really helpful guide to me through tons of material. So I, I, uh, 
feel you know very very strongly that that it was it was God who got me to the right place at the right time to meet with the right people. Um, and it, it was a great project. I worked really hard, but I had a wonderful time. It wasn't a chore by any stretch. Now, you did mention all the solas of the Reformation and such. So when you write this work, you still want to stay in the tradition of the Reformation and such. Yeah, I do. Yep. I do. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Wesleyan church pastor, so I'm probably not reformed enough mm-hmm. for uh, a lot of your, your listeners. Uh, and that's okay. But, uh, yeah, I still, I still count myself uh, in the evangelical fold. Um, interestingly that the title was not my choice. Um, the title was the choice of the publisher. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to call it our lady too. And they, they thought that title was a little too, uh, esoteric. Um, so they went with, with this title. Um, I don't, I don't know if, if that title helped or, or hurt the, hurt the book in terms of sales. Uh, but it, it did kind of stamp it in terms of its intended audience for sure. I don't think you have to worry about not being reformed, you know, such. I'll tell you that personally, I consider myself a zero-point Calvinist, in fact, so uh, I'm not totally sold on things. Now, why did you start writing a book about Mary, of all people? What made her such a point of interest? Well, is a, excuse me, I'm fighting a cold. Um, It's... It was a confluence of a few reasons. Um, one of the reasons was personal, uh, and that is my my dad's side of the family are all uh, French Roman Catholic from uh, from Quebec. Um, my paternal grandfather uh, moved out of the family home when he was twelve and uh, went to work uh, because his family was was basically too poor um, to feed everybody. And uh, from from that uh, point on, it's it's not so much that he was estranged from his family as he just you know had to go where the work was, uh, and that meant going to uh, when you're you know twelve. That meant working at local farms. So you know because of his having to leave home early and go to work, um, he had to uh, to learn English. Um, he eventually uh, experienced uh, what we'd call an evangelical conversion. Um, started attending uh, church, and uh, after he uh, he married my grandmother, um, they raised uh, their family in the the Wesleyan Church uh, in uh, in rural Quebec in the Ottawa Valley. And as a result, um, I've got a whole raft of cousins that um, I rarely see who uh, you know are separated from me by language and by religion. And that always made it, you know, a little bit fascinating. You know, whenever I'd end up uh, at the uh, the parish church that, you know, the the, the family parish church in uh, in Aylmer for a, a funeral or whatever, um, it was always kind of fascinating because it was a whole way of life that a large chunk of my family participated in that I knew nothing about, uh, and that you know my grandparents and parents were were quite happy for me to know nothing about it. Uh, and that made it all the more attractive. So that part of it has always kind of been with me uh, in my growing up years. And, and so when I had a, the opportunity for a sabbatical, um, there was a personal itch that uh, I could take some time to scratch. Um, the second thing, uh, second reason was, was largely uh, professional. Um, to get a sabbatical application uh, accepted, 
Uh, you had to present uh, a, a project that had uh, potential for publication that would represent a unique contribution to scholarship, all the usual kinds of things. And um, this seemed to, to be that project. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it was uh, accepted by uh, InterVarsity Press. It was accepted uh, by my school. And uh, so, it, you know, it, it just kind of worked out that that would be the project I would work on. And uh, from there, you know, uh, getting the, uh, the place as a sabbatical scholar at St. Paul University really sealed the deal. So those, those three things kind of worked, all worked together um, to make the project happen. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's still bearing fruit. I wrote the book uh, 2004, 2005. Uh, was published in 2006, so it's older now. I mean, as we were uh, talking before in our email exchanges, it's been out of print, um, gosh, for a long time now. I think it went out of print in maybe 2010 or a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, it still it still pops up. You know, I'm doing your your podcast today, and thank you again for the invitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it's it's regularly used as a textbook at Wheaton College. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, in their art history department, uh, not in their Bible and theology department. So that that's kind of kind of fun. Um, but I know it, it pops up there regularly. So um, it has it has a small kind of niche uh, market. People are still interested in it, and it's certainly bearing fruit for me. So it was mm-hmm. a good project. Yeah, I got interested in it because my wife has been exploring Eastern Orthodoxy lately, mm. and seriously considering it. And me, I mean, I've got a decent grasp of church history. I, you know, I understand what's meant by referring to Mary as a Theotokos, for instance. Right. But at the same time, I'm looking at the way Mary is treated, and I'm thinking, I think this is a bit over the top and such. So I started doing some research on Mary. One of the first books I came across from a Protestant perspective was uh, Scott McKnight has written one recently on Mary. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Real Mary, and in it, he mentioned your book. And well, that's so I thought, kind of... I thought, that could also be a good one to get on here and such. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we, we tried to get you on before, but there were there was a death every single time. So thankfully, no one was dying this time. Yeah, no one, no one died this time. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a couple of people in hospital, mm. but uh, it looks like they're going to recover. Um, the, 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 actually the, the, the big thing was, uh, my father's death. So it, yeah. it, uh, it wasn't just random, you know, uh, or, or kind of the usual, uh, parish ministry, um, mm. stuff. It was a pretty significant event, uh, in our family that derailed things, but I appreciate your persistence and, and we're able to go ahead with it now. Well, my condolences to you and your lost person there too. Thank you. Now. When we do talk about Mary here, still, I mean, like, at, I mentioned the term Theotokos there, hmm. and I think that's an interesting one because, I mean, ultimately I like to start with Gospels, but the term Theotokos is something that really did lead to the writing of a book, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, the- Theotokos is really is, is the watershed hmm. uh, in terms of the development of uh, Marian piety and, and, and doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's an interesting word because, uh, you know, like like the word Trinity, uh, it's not found in the Bible. Um, and uh, unlike the word Trinity, it, it has a pretty extensive uh, non-Christian or pre-Christian history. 
Um, and that, that kind of spooks some people. I, I, I don't know that it should, uh, but, it, but it does. Um, it, it comes into uh, Christian vocabulary um, through the language of, of piety, through the language of worship. Uh, but it's it's adopted uh, into into orthodoxy uh, as a as a christological title um, it's it's adopted in order to say something true preserve something true about the person of Jesus uh, and 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 that the that which is uh, uh, preserved in the adoption of the title by the Council of Ephesus in 431 is the unity of Christ's person. Uh, so Mary did not bear the human nature of Jesus, um, which is what the uh, the other side, if you want, uh, was arguing for. They preferred the term Christotokos for her. Uh, and the, the, the counter-argument was be, women don't bear natures, women bear children. Uh, and uh, Mary's son, uh, Mary's child, was God. So she's she's not uh, the mother of his human nature. She's the mother of his one person in two natures, and so she is rightly described as the mother of God. Um, when that title is uh, is adopted uh, by uh, the Council of Ephesus, of course, uh, while it's adopted for Christological reasons, it also cements, uh, you know, the, the previous century's growth of, uh, of uh, Marian uh, piety and devotion and, and continues to, uh, to set its trajectory, ensuring that it will continue uh, on into the future. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was kind of document um, how uh, not simply how Theotokos serves as a watershed, but I wanted to, to document the, you know, the prehistory that leads up to it uh, with respect to Mary and then the flowering of Marian doctrine and devotion that takes place uh, afterwards as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the really interesting things that, that I discovered in my research is that uh, with respect to Theotokos, um, John Henry Cardinal Newman, you know, the great Anglican convert to Catholicism in the 19th century, and uh, and John Calvin had uh, surprisingly similar opinions. Uh, you know, um, both uh, agreed uh, that uh, Theotokos was uh, adopted to say something true about the person of Jesus uh, and affirmed the title as a result, though Calvin didn't want to use it. He was he was quite uncomfortable with it, but both affirmed that it said something uh, true about Jesus, um, uh, and so it, it, it was a legitimate part of the tradition. But Calvin thought that it, it, it brought with it uh, all kinds of, of problems that needed to be corrected with respect to Mary, uh, and, and uh, Newman argued that that was kind of perpetual meddling. Um, if you started, you'd never really get stopped, and so the task of the theologian was kind of to let piety develop on its own, and only when it really went off the rails uh, should the theologians in the church intervene. So they, they had similar similar views of, of kind of the abuses that came alongside with the, with the, with the title, but very different responses to it. Yeah, understood. I mean, that uh, 
I can see why some people might have a problem with the term theotokos today, and, prob- and definitely not one that was ever intended by it. Like, if I go up to you and I start saying, Jesus is God, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. But to someone on the outside, they might be thinking, oh, does that mean Jesus is the Father? Or something like that. And that's not at all what we mean. And sometimes I think when people hear the term God bearer, they might think, wait, God's eternal. How could Mary give birth to God? And that was never what was meant by the term. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's not. And, and, and uh, it's, but she is the, the mother of, of his person, Right, mm-hmm. not just the not you, 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 we we're not free with respect to Jesus to divide him into a human half and a divine half, uh, only part of which is is Mary the mother. Um, he's one person uh, in two natures, um, united without division, without separation, without mixture, without confusion. You know, as as Chalcedon would put it, twenty years after uh, the Council of Ephesus. Um, if if that is who he is, if he is one person in two natures, um, Mary's the mother of the person, not the mother of the nature. Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, women women don't give birth to natures; they give birth to babies. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's time now, and that we start going straight into the scriptures here. And I'd say we're going to begin with the Gospels. That's a bit short sighted, actually, because chronologically, the Pauline epistles come before the Gospels. Now, if you go for the Pauline Epistles, though, and you say, I want to find out all about the historical Jesus, but I can, and that was your only source, you wouldn't even know his mother's name through that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the earliest, the earliest strata of the New Testament uh, is the Pauline Epistles. And um, in the Pauline Epistles, uh, Mary's depiction is very sparse. Um, you know, she makes an appearance in uh, Galatians four four. Mm-hmm. Um, Christ is born of a woman, born under the law, mm-hmm. and and that's about it. Um, uh, there, I mean, there there is the the, the curious uh, remark. I think it's in First Timothy that women will be saved through childbearing, mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's pretty obscure. Some people see there, and I, I actually don't talk about this in the book. But some people see there a, a Marian, uh, possible Marian referent. Um, I don't know if there is one or not. It, it's a lot. I think it's a lot to hang on one verse. Uh, but even though Mary is uh, makes it makes only one very small appearance um, in Paul, the. Uh, the theme that's introduced there is one that continues throughout the scriptures and well into the fathers. And that is, you know, Mary is the guarantor of the full humanity of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, Christ was born of a woman born under the law. Uh, It, the, 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 the sentence functions uh, analogously to, uh, to Paul's declaration in Romans um, you know, uh, the son of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Um, Mary functions to, to guarantee the full humanity and indeed Jewish humanity, uh, of Jesus. It's about establishing his humanity and his messianic credentials. <coughs> Pardon me. And, and that becomes a, a theme that's, uh, that comes up not not only in the New Testament, but runs runs all the way through 
um, the early fathers in particular, where um, the major opponent was not uh, conceiving of Jesus as divine, but conceiving of Jesus as a human being. Uh, and so, you know, some of the early Gnostics could speak of Mary as uh, a tube through which uh, the, uh, the divine Christ passed uncontaminated. And the fathers insisted, no, she really was his mother. And so Galatians 4.4, among other places, but Galatians 4.4 figures quite highly uh, in that kind of, of argument. It, it, it's about guaranteeing the humanity of Jesus. When we meet uh, Christ, we meet the man uh, who is God. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just uh, a God who looks like us, but a God who, who is uh, in every way one of us. Well, I think it's interesting you refer to First Timothy too, because just last week on here I interviewed Richard Schink, who wrote the book *The Virgin Birth of Christ*, which I do affirm, my listeners, and he <laughs> has that I have a whole joke series about that, and I, if anyone wants to know what's going on when I say it, just go to my blog and quit and do a search for *I Affirm the Virgin Birth*, and there's a whole post on it there, but. He he has that very same interpretation. First Timothy two is an Eve Mary kind of right. thing and such. So if anyone's looking to see more about what Dr. Perry's saying about a possible Marian reference there, I recommend listening to that show there from last week. But let's move. Let's do say something about Israel. I mean, why do you think there is such a silence in a Pauline epistle? I mean, since I talk about the virgin birth, there are so many people. Who do say we're geez. Why didn't Paul talk about these things if he believed in them? Well, um, I my suspicion is, you know, he had more pressing things on his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, you think of uh, I, you know, I, when I came to you, uh, I resolved to know Christ and Him crucified. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Corinthians. I think he was so eager to uh, plant the community, get the community established, and go on to the next one um, that uh, uh, the the kind of the the, the pre passion. <coughs> sorry, <coughs> the pre passion uh, and resurrection of our our Lord really uh, wasn't the center of of his teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, he was he was consumed with uh, with evangelization, and certainly in the New Testament, um, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, reflection on on Jesus' childhood uh, and and early years uh, comes simply comes later. Um, so I, I, I expect, and I'm, I'm happy for someone who's a Pauline scholar, who I'm, which I'm not. Uh, to correct me, but I, I expected it. Just Paul simply had other, uh, more pressing evangelistic and pastoral needs, and he was always on the go, and simply, uh, you know, wasn't interested in setting down um, a gospel. Yeah. Um, you know, not not least because uh, there, you know, there there were uh, gospel fragments um, already being circulated that uh, that. 
uh, Paul draws from, you know, you think of the Christ hymn in Philippians, mm-hmm. uh, and that he refers to. So, you know, he's kind of letting other people do what needs to be done while he's got his own sense of mission. That, that would be my guess at an answer, yeah. anyway. Well, my, my own answer also, you can see what you think of this, and I guess this explains the whole version birth thing. Was I was involved in a Facebook friend with, thread with a friend once, dialoguing with someone who's agnostic about these kinds of matters and saying, but don't you think Paul would have mentioned if he believed in it? And I made the point of, look, many of us attend our own church services, and our pastors are very orthodox, and they believe in the virgin birth, and they don't come right out and say every single sermon, hey, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I affirm the virgin birth. They don't have to. It's part of a background mm-hmm. knowledge. And to make a joke about how ridiculous it would be, we started saying, I affirm the virgin birth, in pretty much every single reply we made. So the whole thing is meant to show how ridiculous this kind of thing is that it was really part of a background knowledge of what was known at the time, and Paul does not write a circumstantial layer to go into background knowledge. So that's my take on it. There you go. I, yeah, that, that, that seems to me to be entirely plausible. Um, like I say, you know, you, you might, you might want to have a, a Pauline scholar on sometime to, mm-hmm. to press him or her a little bit further, mm-hmm. but that, that sounds right to me. Paul, Paul is just, it, it's not a question of whether he knew or he didn't know. It just he has different concerns in mind when he's putting his letters together. Yeah. Now, let's move on to the Gospels, which I think most people think this is where the real meat is to be found on Mary. Now, sure. chronologically, most scholars will say Mark was the first one written. Now, whether that's true sure. or not, I'm not going to get into that one. But it doesn't really matter. We're going to have to go for all the meat. Sheet. Now, if we looked at Mark, Mary isn't entirely on the side of the angels and Mark in our minds, is she? No, she's. Uh, I, I in the book I call her a you know a well-intended opponent of the Gospels, um, and I I think in you know what Mark's major theme is the cost of discipleship uh, that that following Jesus is going to uh, make some pretty serious demands. Uh, on you. And um, certainly, you know, I, th- I think that's true of the document simply as a piece of, of literature. And that, that certainly um, harmonizes with uh, what most scholars agree is kind of the history to Mark, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's probably at its core, the memoirs of Peter. Uh, and it, it is uh, put together um, by Mark uh, af- shortly after Peter's death in, in Rome to a community that really is at a point of existential crisis um, because under Nero, the early Christian leaders in Rome are, are being executed. Um, so, you know, Mark's theme is, uh, is one of um, costliness, um, that, that following Jesus is... Uh, worth it, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Um, but until the end, um, it can be quite costly and quite painful. And one of the ways in which Mark um, develops that theme is to show that even Jesus' closest relatives, his mother and his, his brothers, uh, misunderstand him. They get him wrong. Um, they think he's crazy. Um, they think that he might even be um, it, at some level uh, demonically deluded or controlled. And so they need to uh, bring him home. 
Um, they need that, you know, in the, the word there, uh, you know, those from Nazareth came seeking to restrain him is, and I'm working from memory here, but I think that's what the text says. Um, the word restrain is, is the same word that Mark uses to describe what Herod did to John the Baptist in putting him in prison. So yeah. it's, it's not a, it's not a there, there, Jesus, it's time to come home now. Um, they're, they're going to bring him home. Uh, and they're going to, you know, prematurely end his mission by silencing him. Um, but what makes them different from, you know, say the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or whomever is opposing Jesus is that they're, they're doing it with uh, good reason. Uh, they misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstand his message. They're afraid for him and for themselves because of the attention that's being drawn uh, by Jesus to to himself and to them and 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 you know for the sake of the good of the family they they want to to bring him home and so I, I think what I think Mark is doing there literarily is 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 showing how even the most precious bonds uh, can be strained by faithfulness to the gospel and uh, even the most important people in our lives uh, may be. Uh, confused or radically misunderstand what it means for us to be a follower of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you'll be Mary and her sons and such. And the Pharisees early on in the gospel are already planning on how they're going to cure Jesus. And that certainly isn't on the agenda of Mary. They're no. wanting to still act in love and such, but they probably, I think suspect Jesus is kind of shirking his familiar responsibilities because he's a firstborn son. He has to be able to provide for him. And where if he's a Messiah, he needs to be told what the Messiah is really supposed to be doing. Yeah, could well, could well be. I mean, it's, it's interesting that in the, in, in the text itself, um, the, the whole, you know, the, the, there's the kind of the two sets of bad guys. There's the, mm -hmm. The members of Jesus' family, and there's the uh, those from Nazareth, and, and a, a group of Pharisees from Jerusalem. Uh, uh, and the the uh, the family thinks Jesus is out of his mind. Um, the the Greek word is ecstasis. He's outside of himself. Um, in other words, he's probably being controlled by another spiritual power. Um, uh, the uh, the Pharisees uh, amp up the charge. Um, he's in league with Beelzebul. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. Uh, and, and Jesus' response uh, to, the, to the Pharisees is, is far harsher than his response to his family. You know, his, his response to the Pharisees who have come to check him out from Jerusalem is that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So I can't be casting out Satan by the power of Satan. Uh, and if, if you don't recognize by whose power I'm doing this, then, then you've sinned against the Holy Spirit, and that's a sin that's unforgivable. Um, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's a matter of the will. It's, it's not that you cannot repent and believe. It's that you will not uh, repent and believe. And because you will not, you will not be forgiven. It's an unpardonable sin. Um, and then the response to his, his family members is, whoever does the will of my father is my mother, my sister, and my brother. So the, the door is open to them in a way that it's not to the other enemies of Jesus, but it's open on the same condition that everybody else is. 
right? The, the door of repentance and faith is the way in which we enter into Jesus' family. And that's true for members of Jesus' bloodline, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's as true for them as it is for anyone else. It's only those who will not believe, um, like the religious leaders, uh, who are excluded from the invitation. Yeah, I do want to give a little brief aside since you mentioned the passage about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because I know there are many Christians who often struggle with this. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what you're kind of saying also is it's not the kind of thing that can be done today. And Christians who are panicked that they've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit probably shouldn't be panicking about that. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I had a couple of students uh, way back when I was teaching in my in my office quite uh, concerned that they might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And my my answer to them is is an answer I, I continue to believe, and that is if, if you're worried that you've done it, you haven't done it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, because it's it's about a matter of, of, of the will. It is it is knowing and understanding the gospel and willfully, deliberately, in an ongoing way rejecting it. Mm-hmm. And, and and at some point, you know, your will is so oriented uh, against grace that, um, you know, you, you seal your own fate. Uh, you, you so consistently choose against um, the Lord's intervention that, that you become a person who cannot respond to the gospel. Yeah, I know that wasn't the point of your book and such, but I did want to mention a brief aside there for sort of a pastoral purpose for our listeners. But let's move sure. on then to Matthew here. And mm -hmm. Matthew tells us a little bit more, and he also gives us a very interesting genealogy, doesn't he? He does. Matthew's all about establishing Jesus' uh, messianic credentials. And he's doing it in a, in a really, I think, sensitive kind of way. Um, when, when Matthew's written, uh, you know, it's, it's shortly after the fall of the temple. Uh, and that means that those uh, sects of uh, early Judaism that were oriented towards land, um, uh, like the zealots uh, or uh, the temple itself, like the Sadducees, um, those uh, Jewish schools of thought that said, you know, uh, authentic Judaism resides in being in the promised land or in proper temple observance. Well, when the when the Jews are are, are dispersed uh, by Vespasian after AD seventy, um, those ways of being Jewish simply have uh, no longer any reason to be uh, because. Um, you know, the, the Jews are dispersed from the land and the temple has been destroyed. So, you know, arguing about the authenticity of temple observance really becomes irrelevant. Um, so what's left? Well, what's left are, are those uh, uh, Jews who say um, authentic Judaism uh, rely, uh, uh, finds itself in, in the synagogue and in keeping Torah, uh, the Pharisees, in other words, uh, and and those uh, uh, Jews who say, you know, this uh, itinerant rabbi from uh, Nazareth uh, was the Messiah, um, the followers of the way that they're called in, in Acts, the early Christians. And so what we have in Matthew is an argument about um, which way of being Jewish is the authentic way of being Jewish. 
And Matthew is, uh, more than the other Gospels, an apologetic Gospel. Um, He wants to present the Gospel in such a way that uh, uh, his fellow Jews, who are not believers in Jesus, um, will be willing to consider uh, Jesus' messianic claims. And uh, the biography, uh, the the genealogy, I should say, is 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 part of that. Um, and he makes a point of of including, uh, you know, these these uh, women with kind of scandalous stories um, in the uh, in the in the biblical record um, to say, you know, God has incorporated uh, scandal right into the messianic line. So um, you you can't be scandalized at Mary. Uh, and not be scandalized for very similar reasons uh, by um, Tamar and uh, Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of, of uh, um, questionable things going on in those stories. And, and so I think he deliberately includes those names, uh, not so much to vindicate Mary, um, as to, to, to kind of create a little bit of breathing room to say, you know, at least consider Mary. And then the, the means by which you consider Mary is through the eyes of Joseph, who is uh, the righteous man. Um, and if, if Joseph uh, takes up Mary's cause and Joseph is a righteous man, then you as a, as a righteous person like Joseph, you should be willing to consider Mary too. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a kind of an evangelistic and apologetic um, argument going on even in the way Matthew constructs his genealogy, he's not just about um, narrating history, uh, but he's he's using history for an evangelistic or apologetic purpose there. And something that I would map also is that uh, when we had Richard Schink on last week come out the virgin birth, we one of the things to talk about is that a lot of people were looking to think that that comes from paganism and such, mm-hmm. and that would have been, that could have been a charge that was thrown out by Jewish opponents of Jesus, and say, if, because if Jesus had been perceived as illegitimate, one of the last things Matthew would just want to make up, I think, would be like and say, well, um, it, it he was going to go away, but it, it was God who did it. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. God, and such. It's not the kind of thing you'd make up, I mean, it's kind of like saying, yeah, Mary was evil and more, or she got raped, but instead of admitting those, we're just going to blame God for it. Yeah, it's, uh, if Matthew is writing many, many decades later and essentially composing a piece of theological fiction, mm-hmm. he could have told the story in such a way to make it much less scandalous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the the that he narrates the story the way he does testifies to the relatively early nature of the story, um, the widespread acknowledgement amongst followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus that that the conception and birth of Jesus um, has some serious question marks around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, both both the early Christian uh, and uh, non-Christian Jewish uh, audiences uh, who, you know, received Matthew um, would have been uh, horrified by any kind of um, co-option of, you know, uh, pagan mythology. 
um, you know, whether we're talking about uh, Mithras or Osiris or, you know, whomever, um, they just, it just simply wouldn't have flown. Um, so, uh, uh, so, you know, the, 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 I think the, the, the gospel is, is, is written in such a way because it, it reflects, you know, the, the convictions of, uh, of an, an early Christian community, uh, an early Jewish Christian community, um, that, uh, Jesus conception and birth was in some way, uh, miraculous, and, you know, even in the first century, people knew where babies come from and mm-hmm. original conceptions and births were not common. Uh, they, you know, it, it, they recognized that this was potentially scandalous. This was potentially an opportunity for ridicule. Um, certainly in, in later Jewish writings that speak of, of Mary being raped by a Roman soldier, uh, that, that, uh, that, kind of, that ridicule uh, was uh, taken up. Um, and I think Matthew is, is saying to his Jewish but non-Christian audience, well, hang on a second. Uh, Mary is not the first uh, woman with a question mark after her name in the Messianic line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look at Tamar. Look at Rahab. Um, look at Ruth. Uh, look at the wife of Uriah. If God can work in all of those situations and incorporate those women into the foremothers of the Messiah, then at least give me a chance to tell my story about Jesus, mm-hmm. the son of Abraham, the son of David, uh, 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 and so on. So that's what I think is going on there. It's not just a straightforward narration of history. It's, it's history being put to an evangelistic purpose. Yeah. We could keep going on, but we do have to get to be ever gospels. And, you know, we're going to have to go through the rest of church. Oh, no apologies. We're going to have to go through the rest of church history in about an hour's time or so. It shouldn't be too big of a problem here. But uh-huh. um, how about Luke? Now, it kind of surprised you said Matthew is probably the most apologetic of the gospels because I would have thought Luke was the most apologetic since he's one no ghost set talks especially about going and getting eyewitnesses and such, but maybe it's because I'm looking at more from an evidential Gentile way of thinking instead of a Jewish way of thinking. But what does Luke tell us about Mary? Well, I, I, th- I think Luke is just writing as a historian, mm-hmm. uh, a first century historian. He, you know, so he's, he's writing to Theophilus, whether Theophilus is a literary construct or a real person. Um, we don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but he's he's either an uh, you know just converted or on the cusp of becoming a Christian, and so Luke says, "I've resolved to set down an orderly account of the things that have happened among us, and to do so, I consulted eyewitnesses and servants of the word." Mm-hmm. So, uh, and 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 then comes you know the the wonderful stories in Luke one and two of. Um, the Annunciation to uh, to Zechariah and then to Mary and then the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. And so, I I mean, I, th- I think, again, like Matthew, um, Luke is not engaging in free-flowing mytho-theological composition. I think he's setting down what he was told. And it's it's really, really interesting to me that a large part of what he was told would have been known only uh, to Mary and her immediate family. And so 
Um, one of the eyewitnesses and servants of the word, one of the streams, if you want, that, that Luke taps there is a Marian stream that certainly predates him. And if, if his gospel comes into its own by around 80, um, I, you know, the older I get, the earlier I think the gospels are come into their own. But if we stick with 80, you know, he's, he's drawing on well-established Christian traditions that have their roots in Mary herself. And, and so, you know, the ancient Christian tradition that Luke actually consulted Mary uh, as one of the eyewitnesses, it might not be as far-fetched as, you know, some early modern biblical critics would have thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't really have any problem with that whatsoever. And I think it's interesting about the Matthew's gospel seems to focus so much on uh, Joseph. Mm-hmm. Luke's gospel does focus a whole lot more on Mary. Yes, absolutely. Luke Luke has a very uh, a very almost uh, uh, woman centered mm-hmm. telling of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like even even the the phrase you know in the sixth month, uh, an angel came to a virgin in Nazareth, uh, espoused to be married, whose name was Mary. Well, this, the sixth month, uh, refers to, um, Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, which is just, it's, it's not the way he usually dates things. Even in that part of the story, he, he cites emperors or, or governors or, uh, you know, what we would say is kind of, uh, traceable, dateable, independent pieces of evidence, um, but when he gets to the guts of the story, he has this very woman-centered way of telling it, you know, which suggests to me that he's he's drawing on a, a woman-centered um, tradition that, that goes back to Mary herself. Mm-hmm. All right. So now, moving on to John, and this is something that hadn't occurred to me until I read your book, but, you know, we think where it seems like Mark doesn't give us, or, or whatever, a party in epistles, they don't tell us a lot. Mark tells us some stuff. He seems to present Jesus as, or Mary as, a well-intending opponent of Jesus. So it looks like then by the time we get to John, things are going a bit better. But then when we get to John, if all we had was John, we wouldn't even know Mary's name again. That's right. She's just woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I think I think John more than... <clears throat> I'm really sorry about my cough. Um, okay. Uh, I think John more than the other evangelists is, I you know I, th- I think he he is interested in giving us a reliable you know historically reliable account of the gospel story, uh, but he's also um, so interested in the symbolic uh, and 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 Mary Mary becomes a symbol for. Um, the faithful community, I think, in John. I think that the trajectory's already started in Luke, uh, but s- certainly in in, in John, uh, she is she is uh, she's not so much a person in her own right uh, as she is in Luke. And really, only in Luke is she a three dimensional character. Um, in in John, she's she's a symbol for uh, for the faithful community, um, both um, at uh, in the two two places where she appears at the at the wedding in in John two and then at the crucifixion, um, in those two places, um, 
she's a she's a symbol for the believing community. I think that's how she works in the gospel there. Now, a little brief thing about the whole incident at Cana and such. Do you think Jesus was being disrespectful to Mary there? No, uh, no. I again. I mean, I, I think I think the whole thing is is so uh, theologically freighted that to to try to penetrate through that into Jesus' psychological state is asking way more than what the text can or intends to offer us. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, it's a bit of a misguided question. Um, I, I think far more interesting is, uh, you know, his initial response to his mother, um, woman, my hour is not yet. Um, so, you know, and the, the, the hour is it's repeated again um, at, at key points throughout the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 uh, and in in Mary's uh, response to um, Jesus' apparent rejection of her request uh, is to go to the servants and and point to Jesus and say whatever he tells you to do, do it. Um, and then he performs miracles. I think you know the the it's it's the idea it, it's it's the ideas present in the story like. Uh, you know, you have the first mention of Jesus' hour. We have the uh, seven stone water pots uh, filled up to the brim that become the choice wine that's given at the end. Uh, this is the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed. I, th- those are the things that, that I think really matter. And I think, I think we access those things by reading the gospel as a piece of literature rather than as a piece of psychology and trying to ask, you know, what's going on between Jesus ears. Um, because I, I don't think John is really interested in that. And I think he's doing other things. Mm-hmm. Well, one other reference we have to go from the new Testament and think about, about, uh, Mary, cause there's not much, even in Acts. she's among the early believers and such. Yeah. And that's all we can really say. One yeah. reference that could be debated. Some is, is Revelation twelve talking about Mary? Uh, I I think it is. Um, I believe so even more strongly now than I did when I first wrote the book. Um, certainly in its canonical context, as part of the Christian New Testament, um, you simply cannot not see Mary there. Um, but again, like in the Gospel, and I'm, I'm not necessarily equating uh, the authors here. Um, but like in the Gospel of John, uh, it may, she's the the woman there is is overlaid with all kinds of symbolism um, that I spell out in the book. You know, she's uh, she's Eve. Um, she's uh, the faithful people of God uh, persecuted, Old and New Testament. I think she's she's Mary. It's 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 all there. There there might even be some. Uh, pre-Christian reference to, um, not to, you know, uh, paganize the gospel, but to show that, that, you know, from from always, the Gentiles have been included in uh, in God's saving plan. I think all of that comes uh, in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 12. Um, So we have a a really rich symbolic portrayal there, but I I don't think you can... um, I don't think we have permission, if that makes sense, 
uh, to not see Mary or to deny Mary her place there. It's simply, uh, as part of the Christian canon, it's simply too obvious. Uh, I think there could be some people, I mean, I'm not totally sold on Mary being the woman in there, but I think there could be some people who say, well, okay, but if I go with that, does that mean I have to take on, like, say, all the Marian dogmas of the Catholic Church at that point and such? Well, I don't think so. I mean, there's there's nothing there's nothing in Revelation twelve that requires uh, immaculate conception or bodily assumption or any of that. Um, Revelation twelve is itself a piece of apocalyptic uh, literature, which is you know highly highly symbolic, uh, and, and so it, how just how it refers. Um, is a is a really complicated question. So mm-hmm. to see Mary in Revelation twelve doesn't necessarily commit you to uh, a Catholic or an Orthodox capital mm-hmm. O view of things. Mm-hmm. Well, before we start going into our next section, starting looking at church history, I like to remind everyone. I'll go ahead and do it now. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I've got my guest, Dr. Tim Perry, with us this week talking about his book, Mary for Evangelicals. Some are Christmas theme and such. So next week we're um, not going to be doing more Christmas for now. We're going to go and talk about what is an obviously light subject to discuss. We're going to be talking about slavery in the Old Testament. And I'm going to have Dr. Richard Averbeck on talking about slavery. What was it? Why would God use slavery? Is it anything like what we see in, say, the Civil War time period and such? If you get a lot of questions from your skeptical friends about slavery in the Old Testament, you need to be listening to this episode. But now let's go to uh, back to our show with Dr. Perry talking about Mary for Evangelicals. Now, how early on is it before we start seeing in church history development of doctrines that many of us Protestants, I can say, Okay, now we're starting to get questionable. I mean, I meant things like, say, a perpetual virginity and things like that and such. Well, I think per- perpetual virginity is, it really is always there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's not until the advent of uh, modern biblical criticism that it's, it's seriously, um, seriously denied. Uh, it comes up earlier. It comes up in the fourth, uh, fifth century, and it's opposed by Ambrose and Jerome. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, uh, but it, it's it's a, apart from that. Um, it's really not until the modern era that it, it comes into question, and um, you know certainly for for Protestants. Um, even amongst the first generations of the Reformation, um, the idea that Jesus was Mary's only son wasn't seriously questioned. Um, certainly Luther believed it. Uh, I mean, even up to the, the Wesleys, um, they believed it too. So, so the notion that, that, that uh, Protestants rejected the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary is simply not true. Um, it's it's really only into the modern era that it, it comes to be uh, comes to be rejected. Um, and you know, I'm 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 inclined to think maybe we've been a little too hasty 
in our rejection of it. Yeah, I'm someone who's still very skeptical about it, and I think it's kind of interesting how it, it looks like things have come kind of in a reversal, so what's at the beginning we were saying, where, look, here are even some Protestants who hold the doctrine. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when my wife began this search, we did talk to a Catholic priest, and something he told us is, oh, yeah, in those days in New Testament times, it was common for a Jewish man to marry a woman to provide security for her, never intending to have sex with her. So, mm-hmm. I have never heard of this practice. And so, go look it up. It was a common practice. I talked to my ministry partner first, who'd read, who's read a lot more about the New Testament than I have, and he hadn't heard about it. I talked to my father-in-law, who's a New Testament scholar. He hadn't heard about it. I emailed Craig Keener, who's been on the show a few times before, and he's definitely a well-researched New Testament scholar, and he hadn't heard a thing about it. And he talked about uh, John Meyer, author of uh, um, a marginal Jew, who's actually a Catholic New Testament scholar, and so I emailed him, and he said he's probably, this priest is probably going from a proto-evangelium of James. And, and he did tell me that there are a lot of Catholic scholars today who are questioning the doctrine of perpetual virginity based on research into the New Testament and such. And that they're actually being given some leeway by the Catholic Church. So it, it seems like we've kind of made an interesting shift in how things are perceived. Uh, I mean, it, it it could be. Um, I'm I you know I, I have not done, not done any kind of historical research into marriage practices beyond you know what I studied in seminary, and we mm-hmm. we relied a lot on on Joachim Jeremias. Uh, you know, my my only caution would be um, if we relied on if we rely on kind of the general rules mm-hmm. to tell us what happened in this specific instance. Um, I mean, we, we don't do that with the death and resurrection of Jesus um, because J.D. Crossan is very right to say that in terms of the general rules, um, crucified criminals were thrown in common graves and their bodies were eaten by dogs. And the reason why there was no body of Jesus was because that's what happened to it. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with, you know, possibly u- unique cases in history. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm, so, uh, all, all that to say, uh, I'm, 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 I'm uncomfortable with, you know, wanting to pick a rule that serves our side when we're talking about Mary and Joseph, but actually works against us when we're talking about the resurrection. I think we're, we're dealing with the, the u- uniqueness of the situation. All I can say is in, in terms of, of history, um uh the you know the the notion that Jesus was Mary's only son is there from the earliest times um uh even and it's it's held even by people who uh like Jerome uh called the protevangelium of James a collection of old wives tales mm-hmm. and that's just about a quote um, you know, Jerome, whether you like his exegesis or not, Jerome wants to defend the the virginity of Mary on the, you know, a good Protestant basis of Scripture alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think we, we, you know, we need to take that seriously. Um, so anyway, that's 
that's about all I have to say about that. I yeah, think. Uh, I think uh, at this point where we could say that you know this can be some evangelicals can, as we often do, have freedom to agree and disagree on and such. But it should be a topic of debate. But we should also be sure to say, well, I mean, I say this too as when we're skeptical. We shouldn't say, well, if Catholics and Protestants believe in it, though, we're by God, we obviously can't. Right. I mean, if Catholics and Orthodox, we obviously can't. I mean, we need to look and say, okay, what's the evidence for this position? And how where does it hold up? I mean, that, that is what good Protestants are supposed to do, to, to go and say what the Protestant cry was to the sources. Yeah, but, what do they say? But, I think so. I, 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 I think you're, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think one of the, the problems is um, one strand of evidence that we lately have consistently overlooked is uh, the ancient nature of this belief. This is not, you know, a, a pagan accretion that gets smuggled into Christian piety centuries later. Mm-hmm. This is there from from the beginning. It's not, you know, it's not recorded in Scripture, uh, but it's there from the beginning, and it, it doesn't come from nowhere. So where does it come from? And, and you know, does, does that seal the deal? No, but it's it's a strand of evidence that has not, I think, lately at least, been given its fair weight. Mm-hmm. Now we did talk a little about a bit about the. Yeah. Proto-Evangelium of James. So um, there could be some people out there who are saying, Proto-Evangelium of James. What is that exactly? <clears throat> it's uh, it's mm-hmm. a later document. It's a second century document uh, that purports to give us um, the birth and childhood of Jesus. And uh, much of it, 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 it kind of tracks... Uh, alongside the uh, Gospels of Matthew and Luke, um, but uh, fills in a lot of the details in a fanciful kind of way. Um, so it's from the Protevangelium of James that we get the names of Mary's parents, um, Anna and Joachim. Um, and uh, Mary, we read in that document, was a, a promised child, much like um, Isaac, uh, in the Old Testament, or John the Baptist in the New, uh, a child promised to a righteous barren couple, uh, uh, and and the, the 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 document as a whole kind of functions to to take Mary away from uh, the rest of the human community to 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 make her um, absolutely uh, unique, and certainly you know in the Protevangelium of James, her virginity is is part of that. Mm-hmm. Um. But we, you know, we get some some uh, wild and 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 wacky uh, stuff going on there. Like you know, Mary was uh, raised in a ceremonially pure uh, room um, for a while, uh, almost like a girl in the plastic bubble, and then she was taken by torchlight procession to the temple, uh, where she stayed until she was twelve, and and while she was in the temple, she was fed by. Uh, birds who brought her food, like Elijah, uh, in the wilderness, and and this is just some some really wacky, uh, wacky stuff going on there. Um, and I think you know Saint Jerome in his uh, really caustic rejection of the document as a collection of fables. Uh, I think he's right to do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think the writer of 
But for Raven James James I mean, it's hard to get into a writer's head, of course. Do you think the writer knew that he was do you think the writer really was intending to write history? Was he trying to give like a just so story more for entertainment purposes or not, or what? I have <coughs> excuse me. I have no idea what's going on in in his head. Um but it's you know, it's it's interesting to me that uh, he's doing something I think that's a pretty natural thing to do with a person that has captivated uh, our imaginations. We want to know as much about them as possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we know so little uh, about Jesus. Um you know, uh, his childhood kind of ends um, uh, at at Luke four, uh, and then when he reappears again, he's he's grown up. Uh, his childhood ends at age twelve, um, and and between infancy and age twelve, we don't know anything. And then we have this Jesus at the temple, age twelve, and then from twelve to thirty, we don't know anything. Uh, and 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 so you know, in in a kind of environment where this person has so captured uh, the hearts and imaginations of growing groups of people. Um, people are going to want to know more about them. People are going to ask, you know, I wonder what it was like when kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in that kind of milieu, you know, those stories grow up. And, and so I, you know, I, I don't think the writer of the proto evangelium is inventing things. I think he's documenting stories that were um, circulating at the time, um, but they are so uh, out of harmony with what's going on in the Gospels themselves that I think you know I think we're quite right to say the, these are legendary accretions that grow up after centuries uh, or mm-hmm. after many decades. These, these are not, this is not history. Yeah. When my wife and I talk about these kinds of things, I mean, I tell her that I do get very suspicious of many of these things that come after the Gospels and such, after the biblical record goes to me. I think about, for instance, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which right. many of the church fathers did treat seriously. I say, I mean, you have in this account, Thecla, for instance, a woman who hears a message from Paul and encourages her to not get married, which is the exact opposite of what Paul says in the epistles, and she ends up being baptized in a pool by herself, a pool of man-eating seers. (laughs) It really does not seem to speak of history. No. No, I think think you're right, and I think... hmm? You know, there's there's all kinds of of uh, you know Johnny Carson would say weird and wonderful stuff um, in in uh, early Christian uh, apocryphal writing that mm-hmm. that really just does you know represent fictionalizations mm-hmm. and additions and and filling in the gaps mm-hmm. uh, in in the stories and you know we can we can read them and appreciate them as kind of capturing a mindset. Um, of a time, um, and I, and I think you know we we do similar things today when we 
when we fictionalize stories, you know, you think of the, you know, the, the Jesus movie or the greatest story ever told or the mm. passion of the Christ. I mean, all of those movies fill in the gaps that are, are left in the gospels. Uh, yeah. And they have to. There is a, there's a popular series written several years ago. I remember the Joshua series about, I think a rabbi Joseph Gerzon who wrote it about a man who'd come to a town named Joshua and he was a simple carpenter and such, and you went through, and you could tell he's writing about Jesus, and he's writing account about what it would be like if Jesus came to these towns and such today. And sure. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we would write today. And of course, no, if I decided to write a story like that, I wouldn't dare go out and say, by the way, put this story on the same level of scripture as scripture. I'm absolutely not just to be saying, you know, here's what I think it would be like if Jesus was here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you've got you've, you've got something similar going on there. Um, I think I think the Protevangelium is is really a valuable document in terms of uh, showing us one stream of early Christian belief. Uh, uh, you know, telling us the kinds of stories early Christians told each other about the childhood of Jesus. Um, but I, I don't think there I don't think it's historically valuable. Mm-hmm. I have one that's I'm thinking along these lines that when we talk about Mary and the issue of Virginia and such, could it be also that maybe these things that those girls really the early church didn't have the most positive view of sexuality like we do today. I mean, I think even Tertullian said the highest form of of sexuality and such was to be married and still remain celibate. I mean, is that a possibility? Well certainly, you know, as as Christian asceticism begins to take off in the you know the fourth century, uh, certainly Mary comes to be a model for uh, the ascetic life, both for for men and 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 for women. So you know, yeah, absolutely, that that feeds into it as well. Um, and it's you know certainly Ambrose's defense of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, is all about uh, Mary as the model Christian ascetic. Um, Jerome is far more interested in, you know, talking about the scriptures and, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what the scriptures really teach. Uh, but, but for Ambrose, there's a, there's a much more pastoral, practical issue at stake, and it has to do with the, uh, the, the growing Christian ascetic movement um, that he thinks is highly valuable. And honestly, I mean... Uh, it's it's really easy two thousand years on to chide the early Christians for yeah. having a deficient view of sex, but goodness me, I mean, given the the sexually soaked and uh, gross mm. culture from which they'd been converted, and which um, we're kind of turning into, yeah, yeah. I mean, how could it be otherwise? Mm. You know, um, early Christian views of of marriage and of asceticism were were greeted. Uh, or, or celibacy, I should say, were you know greeted with joy by women because it mm-hmm. it meant they were uh, people mm-hmm. um, uh, who <laughs> to you know uh, borrow from the Me Too, Me Too movement who could withhold consent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, uh, in a way that they could not in in pre Christian Rome. Uh, they were simply mm-hmm. pieces of property. 
So, of course, they were deeply suspicious of sex, but the sex of which they were deeply suspicious was not uh, uh, one uh, a view of sexuality that treated them as as equals. It treated them as as property and playthings, and mm-hmm. so the rejection of it was quite understandable. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, well actually before we move into the medieval period, I'll go ahead at this point and start talking about donations and such. Because I mean, people are working near the end of the year. End of the year giving is upon us. And I'd really appreciate your support. And some of you give us some great one-time gifts and such. Awesome. God bless you. That's wonderful. What really helps us the most, though, is if you become a monthly donor. So that sends a regular amount we can depend on. And such and that means so much to us now if you want to do that what you do you go to my website deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a link on the side that says help support the work of deeper waters christian ministries okay you click on the sublink in there and you get taken to the ministry of risen jesus wait wait, wait. have you gone to the right place is there a mistake in my and my website, nope, you have gone to the right place, dear. As I'd said earlier, I talked to my father-in-law, and that's Mike Lacona. He and his wife, who run that ministry, so Mike and his wife, Debbie, kind of oversee the funds for us. And Debbie is a financial accountant guru type. So you make your donation there, and when you get in touch with Mike and Debbie... Or you get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some e-books that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles Creed and Today's Christian, or co-written the latest Contextualizing Inerrancy, which was a sequel to one that I also co-wrote, Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters, or Christian Answer to this Generation's Questions, or The Mention of Ours Project, which seems to be one of our most popular books out there. Now, there's also another way that you can support us. In Eisen, Christmas is coming up, you know, and a lot of ladies, they would love to see jewelry in their stocking. And, you know, maybe you would even like to be like I was for Christmas back in 2010 or 2009 <laughs> and say, you know, I think this Christmas I'm going to pop the question, which I did on Christmas Eve of 2009. Well, you need a ring to do that. So what you can do, you can buy from our jewelry store at Premier Jewelers. there. My friend Lena Clester runs that. If you want to know how to do that more, if you're not sure... Just uh, ask me and, or ask her and I, I'll, help, I'll help get things taken care of for you and such so you can purchase. But you can purchase something for that lady in your life and whatever you purchase on that site through us, 25% of it goes to deeper waters. So if you're planning on buying some jewelry, why not do it that way and support the ministry at the same time? And guys, you know what I've always told you about this. You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or 
You can buy something special for that lady in your life to make up for that screw up that I know you're going to make with her. Speak from experience on both commands. I've, done, I've made the screw ups and I know I'm going to make even more of them. And if you can't do any of these, please at least go on iTunes and leave a positive review. Tell people about the Deeper Waters podcast. Share, share it with friends and get the word out there. I would just, I, I can't tell you how much I would appreciate this kind of thing. Now, Dr. Perry, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, I don't actually. I'm a I'm a, a church minister. I have a very generous congregation who looks after my financial needs. So, uh, I you know I'd encourage your listeners to to give to your ministry. I think you're doing mm-hmm. good work, Nick. Uh, mm-hmm. but my needs are looked after. Yeah, thank you very much. And no, I don't ask my guests to say things like that. If you're wondering, I appreciate the generosity. Yeah, and I'm very pleased to hear that there is a church that's making sure its pastor is being taken care of. <laughs> now, and with a pastor who's actually doing scholarly research, we need more of that out there. Well, that's very kind now, of you to say. Now, let's go into the medieval period, which has one of my very favorite fi- figures in church history, Thomas Aquinas, the hmm. great thinker who I base so much of my philosophy on. Uh, now, when when we do get to the medieval period, we do see a whole lot m- more development of Marian dogmas and such. And feasts are about Mary, and feasts are bringing the conception of Jesus and such. So, give us a little snapshot of the medieval period. Well, I mean, the the medieval period is is really interesting. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I wanted to do it in my book was kind of move people away from the notion that uh, everything was, with respect to Mary, really minimal until the Dark Ages. And uh, it was only in the medieval era that all the uh, accretions that we don't like uh, came in. Uh, And in in fact, that's not true. Um, Whatever the medievals did, rightly or wrongly, um, they they got from the fathers, or at least from those fathers to which they had access. And, uh, you know, by large measure in the West, uh, that was uh, Augustine and, uh, you know, a, a few others uh, as well, but it was largely Augustine. And and the, the, the seeds, if you want, of all the stuff that, that we don't like or that we balk at or we disagree with, um, the seeds of that is is all there uh, in the in the fathers and the medievals simply um, kind of revel in in figuring out the logical implications of it to the most minute degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, f- for example, um, as far as I know, I've I've not found medieval theologians debating how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Yeah, that's, um, that's a myth that, that, that the scholastics came up about with them. Yeah, but, uh, but you know, they, they certainly debated really intricate questions. Uh, did Jesus own his own clothes or not? Um, was a big one for early Franciscans, because if, if Jesus owned his own clothes, then there would be some permission for private property. Um mm-hmm. You know, uh, so anything that the medievals did, uh, one, you know, 
for all the things they did, what, one of the things they were not uh, was inventive. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, were, they were about um, uh, having received kind of the infrastructure in the scriptures, again, the scriptures to which they had access, having received the infrastructure in the scriptures and in the fathers, they went about kind of constructing the building around that scaffolding or around that infrastructure uh, as best they could. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and so I, you know, I, I wanted to read them as positively as I could. Um, but again, I mean, there's some, some wild and wacky stuff in the medievals for sure. It's interesting that you mentioned Augustine, I think, because I think pretty much everyone tries to lay claim to Augustine. The Orthodox try and say, he's one of ours. Protestants say, he's one of ours. And the Catholics say, he's one of ours. Everyone seems to hold to Augustine in some way. Yep. Yeah. Yes, certainly that's the case. I mean, he's he's far more a Western father than than a, an Eastern one. I mean, in part because of language, he writes in Latin. Um, but also, you know, because the the East uh, simply doesn't share uh, in uh, in some some kind of key themes uh, in Augustine. Uh, you know, the the uh, the Eastern Church is. Uh, very suspicious of Augustine's doctrine of original sin. Um, and that's important in Marian debates because the the uh, dogma that becomes the Immaculate Conception in 1854 um, simply doesn't make sense to Eastern Christians, to Orthodox Christians with a capital O, um, because it's predicated upon uh, a, a uniquely Western understanding of original sin that simply isn't present um, in the East. So the, the East can have a, a very um, full, uh, rich, um, wild vocabulary for uh, Mary in terms of piety and devotion, and, and yet be quite comfortable with things like, uh, you know, saying um, uh, Mary uh, made mistakes uh, or whatever, um, because they, they don't have this, this, uh, this strong view of uh, original sin that's unique to the Western church and which mm-hmm. we get from Augustine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, for instance, they wouldn't have a problem with, say, Mary being a sinner who needed to be saved, right? Well, in, I mean, yes, yes and no. Um, uh, does, does Mary share in, in her, uh, in the salvation brought by Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, you know, as as the Theotokos, she is um, uniquely graced for a mm-hmm. role that is uniquely hers. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, the East and the West have uh, no trouble uh, that saying that Mary is uh, higher than the cherubim and the seraphim. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know that that phrase uh, comes up in a in a in a Christmas hymn that's sung in Protestant churches too, um, at least older ones, ye watchers and ye holy ones, right? Oh, higher than the seraphim, oh, higher than the cherubim, sing his praises, hallelujah. It's it's a verse about Mary giving praise to Jesus. Um, Hmm. So, so, you know, they they can be quite, the East can be quite full with their Marian piety uh, and, and yet not hang as much on it theologically as the West does, because they they don't have this notion of original sin means sharing in Adam's guilt. Um, Mm -hmm. For the East, original sin simply means 
susceptibility to mortality. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they, you know, they, they don't, the East doesn't speak of, of Mary dying. They will speak of Mary falling asleep. Um, but they, they don't have the dogma of the assumption or the dogma of the immaculate conception the same way that the West does, because they simply don't have that Augustinian frame of reference out of which that dogma comes. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's very interesting to try and take about, oh, 1,000 years of church history and put it in about five or ten minutes or so. <laughs> so definitely, and when there is a whole lot more said in Dr. Perry's book about this. And yes, at the end of the show, I'm going to be telling you how you can get your hands on this book. And it is a very good one to read. But we also do have development of doctrines such as, you know, Mary as a co-redemptrix and such. And we have debates on, say, uh, the uh, ascension of Mary, the assumption of Mary, I think, and such. And those do also take place in the medieval period, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. Now, then... We're going to move ahead, and some of my listeners will say, ah, the Protestant Reformation, where once again common sense took over and people returned to biblical views <laughs> and such. And, uh, of course, it doesn't mean, though, that we have to agree with everything the Protestant reformers said and such. I, I remember watching a video someone once sent me about uh, N.T. Wright when he came out with his view on justification. And Al Mohler talking with several others about it. It was an hour-long video. Of course, N.T. Wright wasn't there to defend his views and such. And one line that really stuck up at me was some guy in there, I don't know who he was, but he said, you know, N.T. Wright may have think he's probably, he's found something in the scriptures, but he's going against the tradition. And I'm sitting there thinking, isn't that kind of what the Reformation was all about to begin with? I, you know what? I've, <laughs> I've had very similar response, very similar kind of reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with with Tom Wright in particular, people some people sometimes seem more interested in defending Martin Luther than mm-hmm. in being really clear on what Paul says. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I get you absolutely. So so when we look at the reformers, I mean, I, I do agree with you that at the start they did seem to hold still a lot of the Marian doctrines and such, such as perpetual virginity and such. But I do think Martin Luther, for instance, later on did look and say, okay, I'm starting to see some problems here, things like, say, praying to the saints and to Mary and things like that. Am I right? Well, yeah, I mean, Luther's big thing, it was not so much the intercession of the saints that was problematic. It was the idea that Christ was the angry judge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you, you, you know, the way around the angry judge was to appeal to his merciful mother. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was, and, and that, that's not a dogma or a doctrine in, in the Catholic church, but it right. does represent a pretty well established piety, certainly mm-hmm. in Luther's time and in Luther's place. And I mean, it, it predates him too. I mean, you can find it in, in the prayers of, of Anselm, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's that, that, that really drives him and it drives him because it, it obscures the gospel, which is Jesus is the merciful savior. Mm-hmm. And so anything, anything in terms of piety that obscures the centrality 
of the grace of God displayed on the cross of Jesus. It, I mean, that's what drives Luther crazy. And the problem with the cult of the saints uh, in Luther's time was not so much the idea that um, the saints were closer to God and so seeking the invocation of a saint would be a, a good thing to do. I mean, if we have time, we can talk about that later if you want. Um, the, the, the problem was that that, that, that whole uh, understanding of piety had, had come to rest on a really deficient understanding of Jesus in which Jesus was just waiting for a reason to damn you. And the mm -hmm. only way to get around angry Jesus was appeal to his mother. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, of, of course, uh, that, that, that drove Luther crazy um, for all kinds of reasons. But, I, you know, I'd like to say that that would drive today anyway um, any really thoughtful Catholic crazy too. Um, yeah. You know, because and, – and not not having anything to do with Mary but because it's, it's Christologically just so very wrong and destructive. Yeah. Uh, I know that the priest at the Orthodox Church, my wife attends, uh, he's actually left a review of my show on iTunes, so he's listened. In fact, he's been a guest on the show before in Dialogue with a Protestant. And I'm pretty sure if he heard that kind of thing, he'd say, hey, Martin Luther, I'm right there with you, brother. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and, and that's the thing. Like, when we started talking, you notice I, I said, you know, Mary really comes to the fore in the – in the third generation of the Reformation, um, mm -hmm. when she comes up with in the first two generations with Luther and with Calvin, it's not doctrine, it's it's piety, it's any mm -hmm. kind of piety that elevates Mary to the level of Jesus that mm -hmm. the reformers have in their sights. They're they're right. not worried about Marian doctrine yet. They get there, mm -hmm. but it's it's later on. Um, it's mm -hmm. it's it's any kind of view of Mary that presents her as a way around Jesus, or as more merciful than Jesus, or as a, a, you know a safer savior than Jesus, anything like that, um, which is prevalent in the late medieval era, absolutely, but not official Catholic teaching. It's it's that 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 they, that they want to get rid of, um, and 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 uh, you know later on in the nineteenth century, Cardinal Cardinal Newman will say. Stuff like that makes my skin crawl. Um, so, mm. so a rejection of that kind of piety is not is not a peculiarly Protestant thing. But it starts off with the Reformation for sure. Yeah, and I, I do have my own concerns. I mean, I have no problem saying the saints pray for us and such. That doesn't bother me because I think, hey, they are, they are, and such. My concern is, I think, you know, if we're praying to them, it almost is really in my mind putting them on a lever as Jesus and such. And I think even Oregon in, in church history said, Christians pray to God alone. And I think Martin Luther, he, he did start developing some of those same concerns, didn't he? Well, yeah, yeah. My, my only concern here is is to highlight the context, right? Mm -hmm. um, he, he rejects the invocation of the saints because it's resting on a deficient Christology. And, mm -hmm. and it's the it's the Christology that's more of a driving concern for him. Uh, anything that obscures Christ as the merciful, gracious Savior who who welcomes and forgives and pardons sinners on the basis of his sacrifice on the cross, anything that obscures that is is rejected. Um, 
it's it's not that he's considered the theology of of uh, you know saintly mediation and and rejects it. It's it's because there's a there's a whole web of piety in there that that uh, obscures the face of Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's what really uh, makes Luther intensely angry. Yeah, I, I have the same sort of problem when we're at the Orthodox Church, and I hear things like through the intercessions of your mother and such, and I'm, I'm usually thinking, um, Jesus alone, I think, is enough to make intercessions for me. I mean, as a Protestant, I just get that natural inclination to think, I think we kind of could be da- could be going on dangerous waters here a little bit. Yeah, it may be. I mean, it depends on what's going on between your ears, I think, when you do that. Um, you know, I have I have no trouble asking uh, my friends who are, you know, have not departed this life to pray for yeah. me. Um, yeah. And it seems to me uh, invoking the saints, if you're going to do it, and I'm not suggesting you do, but if you're going to do it, yeah. it's, it's an analogous kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the saints are even closer to God than we are. So uh, who wouldn't want to ask for them to pray for us? Mm-hmm. You know, um, in terms of the, the unity of the church across the barrier of death, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's that's the only way you can justify it. It's it's not a question of praying to them as though they're they're little gods. Mm-hmm. So certainly it can look like that. And I, I have no doubt that in some cases that is exactly what's going on. And that's deeply problematic. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you know, I keep thinking when my wife talks about these kinds of things, as I say, you know, hun, this is an advantage I think I do have as a Protestant, because I can go to the Orthodox and say, and say, you know, you got some doctrines here. I think some of them are right. I think some of them are wrong, and I don't have to agree with all of them. Mm-hmm. And I can do the exact same thing with the Catholics. I can say, you know, any belief you've got right that I think is true, I can subsume it under a Protestant idea very easily, and it works just fine. Sure. Now, let's uh, move on past the Reformation period. Some, and then we get into the area, let's say, it's called the era of skepticism and such. And this is where we have people like David Strauss and, and Schleiermacher and others who are really starting to really question a whole lot about Jesus. And that includes... Mary, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as as uh, the 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 various quests of the historical Jesus get rolling, um, uh, Mary gets kind of clobbered in those quests too. Um, mm-hmm. She becomes she really fades into the background, um, and she really uh, certainly theologically uh, gets lost. Um, even uh, even in conservative Protestants. Um, you know, she's she's kind of trotted out as a guarantee of the humanity of Christ, and then nothing more is ever said. Um, and and we we end up with a really truncated view of Mary. Um, certainly, we uh, uh, you go so far as saying an, an anemic view of Mary that that simply doesn't reflect. Not simply the the whole of small C Catholic tradition, but doesn't reflect what's going on in the scriptures themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I, I I mean, we've I know we've left the reformers behind, but I I really like the warning of Erasmus 
um, in his uh, in his uh, you know letter from Mary, that kind of satirical letter, when she says to uh, the reformer uh, Glaucoplatus, she says, you know, be careful. You've you've gotten rid of the saints, uh, but if you get rid of me, I'll take my son with me. Uh, and you know, I, I I don't think it's it's an accident that you know an anemic view of Mary goes hand in glove with an anemic view of the incarnation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, the recovery of a really robust doctrine of the incarnation led by Karl Barth, uh, it, it comes along with his ringing defense of the, uh, the Theotokos as a Christologically necessary term. Um, they, mm -hmm. Mary and Jesus come together. Uh, and if, mm -hmm. if you get rid of the mother, she, I think Erasmus is right. She takes her son with her and you end up with a pretty impoverished, moralistic Christianity. At the same time, Karl Barth, I think, was still thoroughly Protestant. Oh, absolutely. In his approach. And, and I think something I read in Richard Schink's book, I did interview last week, said, is that he actually said, you know, I'm not too keen on Mariology, but maybe we should also have a Josephology, <laughs> because Joseph certainly took on a whole lot by agreeing to be Mary's husband after everything. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm quite taken with Saint Joseph as kind of the, the patron saint of the, the men who get up and go to work and 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 uh, do their do their duty to take the best care of their family as they possibly can and and otherwise don't say very much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, I just, so I, I, I think there, I think there is room for a, a recovery of Saint Joseph in our thinking as well. Now, many, I'd say if a huge majority of people listening to my show, since this is an apologetics podcast, would have an interest in making defenses of biblical doctrines and such. How should we be approaching Mary if we're good Protestants and such? Well, I, I think, you know, I think we would want as, as, uh, scripturally faithful Christians, I think we, we, we should want to um, be true to the whole testimony of the scriptures with respect to Mary. Um, mm -hmm. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd be happy with that. Um, and that means we need to do more than trot her out in December and pack her up with the Christmas decorations on January 3rd. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Luke presents her as a model disciple. Uh, who accepts the word of God both with her heart and with her body, um, and and so in some way she functions as uh, uh, an example of faithfulness for believers. Um, I, I think she's uh, a symbolic uh, referent in the later New Testament for the people of God. So you know, in, in how we think about the church, how we think about our work as. Um, the body of Christ as uh, those who are called out uh, by our union with Christ uh, to to uh, engage in his mission. There's, there, there has to be a, a Marian element uh, in those reflections, um, or we end up with uh, an inadequate doctrine of the church, um, not because, you know, Mary's so great, but because we've left out um, part of the scriptural witness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, I, you know, I'd, I'd start with, with that. Um, let's let's commit ourselves to thinking through really carefully what uh, what Mary in the New Testament is doing, 
how she works in the New Testament for Luke or for the uh, for John or for the Revelator or for whomever, and and how does that continue our our theological reflections today? I think we we're we're we're, we're being our authentically Protestant selves in doing that, and I think the the challenge that that I came to in writing the book was that you know Protestants weren't saying things where the Bible was, and and that's you know that's problematic. Um, so let's let's do that together. Let's take the, the, the whole of the scriptural witness with respect to Mary um, into our hearts and into our minds and begin to think it through and, and see what its implications are. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I'd be happy if people just started there. You know, I'm remembering someone saying that uh, about how you don't want to raise your hands in a church service and such because somebody might think you're Pentecostal or something <laughs> in, in a more conservative church. Now, someone, I think some of my professors are going to be saying, I'm not sure we should be doing this because somebody might think they're Catholic or Orthodox. I mean, there seems to be one danger in this mind that if you go and you start a sentiment whereby, God, you're on the pathway to the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, and you better choose one of them. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not... I don't want to steer other people's faith journeys. That's, you know, that's, that's not my business. Um, I think, but I think if, if, if you're a committed Protestant, if you're committed to sola scriptura, then, you know, you got to speak where the Bible speaks. Mm -hmm. Um, And if the Bible presents the mother of Jesus as a model disciple, Mm -hmm. which she is in the gospel of Luke, I think that's textually, I think that's beyond arguing. And yet, Mary, as an example, doesn't figure into your own personal devotion, your own discipleship, um, your your own churchmanship even, then you're failing to say something which the Bible itself says. So you're not being true to sola scriptura, <clears throat> not by saying more than the scriptures do, which is what we accuse the Catholics of doing, but by saying less than they do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and that's, you know, it's, if you want, it's a sin in the equal but opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think for a second, we talk about, say, a perpetual virginity. I, I mean, I think we could say it, it might make sense if, for instance, a person like I go next to the text and says, <coughs> I think it's pretty clear to me from a historical or scholarly basis of sorts that the other people are that are called Jesus' brothers are children of Mary mm-hmm. and such. Now, I have to fact that I could be wrong about that, of course, but that is at least going back to the scriptures and saying, okay, I'm getting my doctrine from the scriptures, and this is what I see. I mean, I think there, part of the danger is when we do go back to the scripture, there really isn't too much about Mary. At the same time, I think the Catholics do have a point where they say that I'll represent Mary as say, just a divine incubator, and that's it. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair charge. Mm-hmm. So let's suppose a whole Protestant family is gathered together, and there is a child there, and this child wants to know what makes Mary so special. What should we even say, and especially if this is a small child, how do we even explain something such as, what it means that Mary had a virgin birth. Uh, I think you say she's special 
because out of all the races in the world, God chose one. And out of all the women in that race, God chose one. And from that woman, he brought forth the savior of the world. And that means she's a very special lady. And we, we ought to, you know, reverence her because of the, the absolutely unique place that providence has given her in the plan of salvation. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's where you start. I think, I think a child can understand that. You know, you mm-hmm. might need to use simpler language depending on how old the child is, but I think that's where you start. Mm-hmm. You know, Scott McKnight in his book, Revere Mary, even suggested, and I did get some pushbacks from Protestants when I suggested that perhaps one day a year at least in church, maybe around Christmas time, we should even have an Honor Mary Day, <laughs> where we take a look at Mary and celebrate her life and what she did. I remember Shemus in a theological form, and one of my immediate responses was, no. What would you think of an Honor Mary Day in a Protestant church? Well, I, I mean, if I'm going to be I'm going to be a little bit snarky, Nick, and, and mm-hmm. but with good intention. Um, we're coming up to the third Sunday of Advent, where the where the the gospel reading is the Magnificat. I mean, then mm-hmm. that is the Sunday that you're looking for, right there. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to invent an honor Mary Sunday because we already have it, um, mm-hmm. even even in in Protestant churches. Um, she's the one who basically sang the entire Old Testament narrative in mm-hmm. her Magnificat. And, and that's the scripture reading for that day. And that's why we reverence her. You know, um, mm-hmm. she, behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because in her, God's dealings with Israel comes to its climax because in her heart and in her womb, she carries the word of God. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so yeah, I I mean, McKnight is right. Um, Have an honor Mary Sunday, but we already have one. It's called the third Sunday Mm -hmm. of Advent. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's the day to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Keep in mind, of course, that reminds the result joke about the differences between how Protestants view the creeds and confessions of the church that Anglicans like yourself could hold to the first seven creeds and councils, I think it's said, and all these things that come with it and such. When you get down to the, uh, the extreme, which same as poking fun, because the church I attend as a church is more along the lines of this tradition, where it says, there's the, pro- the Baptist tradition that says, what creeds? Yeah. And go on from there. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the the ironic thing is that you know, uh, so often um, those churches end up kind of reinventing the wheel. Mm-hmm. And you know, here's here's a time when you don't have to, mm-hmm. right? There's 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 already a wealth of uh, biblical resources available to us, uh, and. And this is a very natural time of year in which to do it, because whether we observe Advent or not, as a season in the church year, we are getting ready for Christmas. Um, it's it's a, a natural time to do it. So, you know, we we you don't need to be creative. You just need to borrow a little bit. 
And since I'm sure many of my listeners are probably evangelical Protestants and such, how should this affect our dialogues when we talk with people who are Catholic and Orthodox? And we could kind of say vice versa, if Catholics and Orthodox hear this, I mean, where do we go from in our dialogues amongst the branches from here? Well, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about dialogue, if you're serious about it, is you don't know where it's going to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a place to start for Protestants is, is don't presume where you're going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I would say is, is you know, if, if you're talking to a, a serious Catholic or Orthodox mm-hmm. Christian, um, even if you demur from whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's, you know, the Immaculate Conception or the bodily assumption or invocation of the saints or the title co-redemptrix, which is a thorny uh, title for sure. Um, be very, very careful how you phrase your objection, because in a very real and profound way, um, you're talking about somebody's mother. And nobody yeah. wants to hear their mother insulted. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you, you want the pushback to be thoughtful. You want the pushback to be engaging. You want the pushback to be about what actually matters. And so keep that in mind when you're phrasing your objections. You don't want to phrase mm-hmm. them in such a way that it sounds like you're being disrespectful to the mother of Jesus. And you know what? Sometimes mm-hmm. we, we, the ways in which we speak really are, I think, disrespectful to the mother of Jesus. And, and we don't hear that because we don't have any kind of Marian piety to draw from. But our Catholic friends certainly do hear that, and that just it it sends things down the wrong path before we even started. Mm-hmm. Well, we really don't have enough time now to get into another question, but I do thank you for coming on. Do you have a a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about even your work? Uh, I mean, I don't have a whole lot of work going on right now, except being a a, a pastor. But if people want to email me, they're welcome to. My email address is my name, Timothy Scott Perry, at hotmail.com. Uh, I have a hotmail address, so it also tells you how old I am. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. old fogies like me have hotmail addresses. Uh, people can reach me there. Um, I might take a while, but I do try to write back to anyone who writes to me. Mm-hmm. And that includes when you wrote back to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The book is Mary for Evangelicals. I'm bringing it up right now to see what price is. It is out of print right now, but that doesn't mean you can't buy it. You can go through Amazon and buy it. Right now on Amazon, it looks like it's only in paperback here, and the price right now is fourteen forty-seven. Maybe it will come out in Kindle someday. Uh, I don't know about that. Well, you know, if, if people keep buying copies, maybe InterVarsity will pick it up again. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for the Deeper Waters audience? Uh, no, just a, apart from saying I, I really enjoyed our, our, our chat today, uh, Nick. The two hours has flown by, and uh, I hope there's stuff there that's uh, useful to your listeners. I had a good time. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have you, and hopefully we'll see you back here again That'd sometime. That'd be fun. I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Richard Averbeck on. We're going to be talking about slavery in the Old Testament. Not so much of a pleasant topic as Mary is, but one that we need to get to. 
For now, I am Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.